Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Joe Zimhart. We talked a couple years ago about his excellent book titled Santa Fe, Bill Tate and Me, and I actually just reposted it last month. And a lot of people listened to that, uh, much more so than when we first did the interview. But I came across his name. I was looking through. This is actually the second guest that I've gotten from looking through the Lewis, Jolien West archives. His name popped up. I said, hey, I interviewed Joe Zimhart. Why is he in the Lewis, Jolien West files? And the same thing happened when I talked to Carl Raschke. I interviewed Carl Raschke about his book, Painted Black. Mm -hmm. So I reached out to Joe and said, hey, your name is in here. And he said, oh, yeah, I worked with, I did some, I knew and met Lewis Jolien West. So I asked him to come in and talk about that. But he also has another book, uh, Mushroom Satori. Both of his books have excellent reviews on Amazon, by the way. And he also has a YouTube channel, which we're going to talk a little bit about because I saw some of the discussions that he had and I'm interested in it. But we're going to talk about Lewis Jolien West and Joe's background. So Joe Zimhart, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, William. Joe, for people who may not have heard our earlier um, conversation, which I will link to in this, once this is done, can you kind of do your background and how you became a cult interventionist and what led you to working with and knowing Louis Jolien West? All right, briefly, uh, I got involved in, in uh, looking at the alternative universe back in the late 60s, like most of our generation did back then, experimenting with, you know, psychedelics or entheogens and... Uh, all that. Um, the consciousness revolution started with a lot of new cults, especially from the East, India and Japan coming. Uh, people were dropping drug use and doing meditation, doing yoga and all of that. That was a, a big change in the early uh, 1970s. Uh, my journey led from college into art school and I was uh, you know, wanting to become a professional artist. Um, when I was studying the modern artists, I noticed that they had uh, often gotten into something called theosophy or occultism from the 19th century, early 20th. And so I began uh, exploring all of that, like the works of William Blake. And it led me to the works of uh, Manly P. Hall, uh, Madame Blavatsky, uh, and a number of other groups. And I moved to Santa Fe in 1975. I got in contact with the I Am activity, which was a uh, 1930s neo-fascist, well, it's actually a fascist uh, organization based on theosophy and channeling ascended masters, and they believed in very right-wing attitudes and, uh, um, you know, supported uh, anti-liberal causes back then. Um, so I was attracted to the conservatism, let me put it that way, after being a, a quasi-hippie for a while. Um, and then a group called Church Universal and Triumphant came across my path through friends, and they were an offshoot of the I Am activity. Uh, Church Universal and Triumphant was founded in 1958 by a guy named Mark Prophet. His wife, Elizabeth Claire Prophet, uh, took over the group when he died in 1973. And I came across them around 1975 and began studying their teachings in 1978-79. I got caught up in it. I went to several conferences out in uh, Malibu uh, in California with uh, three or 4,000 other people. Um, the group had around maybe 15,000, 20,000 members at the time. Uh, yeah, I got caught up in, 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 uh, in the whole activity and, and I bailed out of it after a lot of conflicts in 1980. I began studying what the hell happened to me. You know, what is all this about? Why was I so taken up with this nonsense of communicating with ascended masters and 
doing chanting or what's called uh, positive thinking and uh, affirmations and and you know and in Christianity it's a name it and claim it Christians you know if you if you claim something in the name of Jesus he's going to bring it about you know if you believe in full, full faith and a lot of that kind of theosophy was based on a similar premise that uh, you can magically transform things by uh, invoking God or masters or whatever uh, so uh, I got in touch with uh, people that were ex-members of the group. I got known f for exposing the group. Um, I got in touch with the uh, Cult Awareness Network at the time, and, and I began to work with exit counselors and deprogrammers around 1985, 1986, and made a career out of doing it, cult interventions uh, internationally for about 12 years. And I did it part-time since 1998, until now, I'm still involved in doing some interventions, but um, I work at a psychiatric hospital for the past 22 years. And I have other uh, things in my life that take up a lot of time. So, um, but I still do a lot of research in, the, in this cult business. Uh, I met a lot of interesting people. Lois Jolly and West was one of them. Uh, Dr. Margaret Thayer Singer introduced me to him. Uh, or t about him in 1982 when I met her at her house. Uh, she and Jolly West were involved in government research into mind control in the 50s, uh, especially, you know, what had happened to Korean uh, cap uh, American soldiers captive in Korea. Uh, so West was able to uh, deconstruct what happened to them. There was no magical trickery of mind control going on that caused these soldiers to, uh, uh, you know, renounce the United States and, and uh, praise their captors. Uh, you know, the main reason for that was just basically uh, something very cheap and easy to do, which is sleep deprivation for weeks. You can drive people crazy and get them to say almost anything if they can't think correctly and uh, just want to get some sleep. Right, so you met him. Was Singer's house? Was it in California? It was well, no, I, I, yeah, yeah. I met uh, Doctor Singer in Berkeley, in California, in 1982. Thought, yeah. I met Dr. West for the first time, and I, it was in his office at uh, UCLA uh, Neuropsychiatric Institute. Um, and uh, I think we were meeting over some uh, court cases that were going on regarding Church Universal and Triumphant, and uh, I was a you know a, a outspoken ex-member at the time. And, they were picking my brain, uh, but that's when I first met him. And then I met him again at conferences where he would lecture at the Call Awareness Network conferences. And uh, he asked me to work with uh, two cases that he had. Uh, one was in Scotland. Another one was in California. Um, and I could describe them a little more thoroughly if you want, but, but I was Absolutely. sort of an interventionist on those cases. Yeah. <clears throat> but what was he like in person when you met him? I mean, he, I think he got tenure at the university of Oklahoma when he was 29. So mm -hmm. he was a very brilliant guy, right? Or yeah, he was brilliant. Friend? He, he grew up poor. Uh, he got into the air force services. He got his, uh, MDs in psychiatry early in his life. Um, you know, he got known by the government, uh, for his expertise, and he helped with that Korean debacle in analyzing what happened back in the fifties. Uh, um, he got a grant in the fifties uh, when the government was doing uh, research on LSD and psychotropic drugs and other things to see how they could affect the human mind. When he was at the University of Oklahoma, and that brought him into this whole area of uh, 
of uh, you know linked up with MK Ultra and the CIA and and all of that stuff. It's it's a lot of hype and drama. I mean, what he was doing was considered science at the time, although we look back on it and and there was a lot of mistakes being made, of course, because it was early in that research. Right. And I mean, he, he comes across as kind of a big guy, like he's wearing plaid here. What was he like in person, like talking to him? He was tall. I, 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 he was maybe six foot four. I, I don't know, six three, oh, something wow. like that. He was a big guy. Um, you know, the, the last I remember him, I was at his house. Um, it was toward the 1990, maybe. Uh, we were working on a case with a few other people, and he invited us there for dinner, and his wife was there. She was very gracious, uh, Catherine. Um, I'm not sure if I met one of his children, but but anyway, uh, he liked uh, conversation. He was very amiable. Uh, that particular case I was working on, he was a uh, an expert, I believe, in a court case regarding a young woman who was allegedly abusing her kid. She was in a Bible sect. Uh, Christian sect that that encouraged corporal punishment on children, and and her child was about two and and was you know seemed traumatized uh, to the you know to the uh, uh, people that were involved in in that case and she was on uh, trial for child custody I think so West convinced the court to have her go through exit counseling and I was brought in with a couple of other people uh, to talk to her for a week about you know, her beliefs and, and, and uh, how the influence worked in her situation. Um, yeah, he did all this on his own uh, to, to, because he cared for her very much. He didn't have to. Uh, so we had lots of conversations at dinner. Um, what was interesting about him is like most people toward the end of their, their lives, they're thinking more deeply about the, the final things, uh, you know, what is God, uh, what's the meaning of life? And we had conversations at that depth. Uh, he's basically was a deist in his perceptions of, of uh, theological reality. And, and a deism basically means that, you know, they call it the clockmaker God, the, the one uh, that some original source of being puts the universe into motion and then kind of lets it go according to certain basic laws and, and fundamentals and uh, you know, it may look like chaos to us, but perhaps it's something else that's going on out there that we can't fathom. But in any case, we're free to, the universe is kind of free to run on its own with this ground of being behind it. And it doesn't interact like the Christian God, which people believe uh, interacts with us through the Holy Spirit, you know, on a daily basis. Right. So he kind of, was semi-agnostic, deist, you know, was, that's, that was more, uh, that was common to a lot of people who started the U.S. were deists as well. The yeah, certainly, uh, yeah, a lot of our founding family. fathers were, were deists and, uh, you know, they were universalists. Uh, there were different belief systems going on. Freemasons, uh, I think there was only one Catholic in the mix. Yeah. And Margaret Singer was also kind of involved in that whole circus. So he, Jolyon West was a, a Scientology critic. Yeah. And also involved in CAN, which Scientology sued and ended up owning, right? Can you talk about what that environment, were you familiar with that, what those happenings? With the oh, yeah, yeah, it certainly was. Uh, uh, West, along with psychiatrists, were considered the most evil people in the universe, according to Scientology. 
And West was number one on their list, so he was a big target. They they really hated him, and and he didn't stand down like a lot of other a lot of other professionals did that were afraid of lawsuits from Scientology. He never stood down, and uh, he he spoke openly and critically about the the group, uh, which I, you know, admired him for. Uh, the Call Awareness Network uh, ran into trouble in the early '90s when. A case came up regarding a deprogrammer exit counselor, Rick Ross. Uh, he had uh, involuntarily uh, deprogrammed a, a, a minor, which was legal. You could hold them against their will if the parents wanted to keep them in the house uh, from a Bible Christian uh, type of cult, uh, very controlling. And then they wanted to get the older brother out who just had turned 18. So that when they brought him in, of course, it was against the law to hold him against his will. He went back to the group. The deprogram didn't work. Uh, there was a trial. Uh, Rick was acquitted. But then uh, Scientology got the case and, and ran a civil suit against Ross and the Cult Awareness Network, claiming that Ross got the information to do the case from a Cult Awareness Network member. I think via Canada somewhere. And uh, uh, the Call Awareness Network at the time wasn't well funded. Uh, they weren't well defended. Uh, Scientology uh, ran the case and they won it in court. Uh, the Call Awareness Network went bankrupt around 1995 because of this. In 1996, they had to sell all their assets. The only bidder that bid anything was a Scientology operative and they bought everything, all the archives and the name. So today, if you dial that number that that comes up cult awareness network, you are going to get a Scientologist and they will take all your information. Um, so that's been going on for quite a while. Uh, I was uh, deposed by Scientology's lawyer for that case. They deposed me in Philadelphia. Uh, Kendrick Moxon was one of their main lawyers. And I spent about eight hours, you know, being hammered with questions uh, with a formal setting in, in a, hotel uh, conference room and there was a stenographer there. They were trying to pick my brain as to me giving kickbacks from my deprogramming cases to the Call Awareness Network. Um, you know, I did donate money to them over the years for their uh, ex-member fund, but it wasn't that much. Uh, so I had a lot of fun talking to the Scientology lawyer for eight hours. <laughs> <clears throat> so you got drawn into it as well. Yeah. So they thought they were going to try to get evidence from you that there was something kind of scurrilous going on with Ken. Is that what the, is that why you think they deposed you? Yes. Yeah. They wanted to get evidence. Uh, I, I didn't get called on the witness stand. I don't think they wanted me there. Uh, so uh, in any case there, yeah, they were looking for any evidence to prove that, that Ken had a history of referring people to illegal deprogramming interventions. That's what they wanted to do. And do you do you mind talking more about the two cases that uh, Jolly and West recommended to you, the one in Scotland and the one here in the states? Yeah, the, the one in Scotland, uh, uh, the the cult involved was uh, headed by a, a Muslim uh, Sufi type of character named Sheikh Nazim. Now Nazim had a following, um, pretty strong in in the West somewhat. His group. And he was responsible for recruiting Cat Stevens early in his career when Stevens went off the rock and roll circuit and became this, you know, um, Muslim uh, and uh, stopped performing for quite a while. And he only recently, in the last seven, eight, ten years, maybe he started performing again. 
but but yeah, that that uh, particular Muslim cult, I'll call it, uh, was was very uh, shrewd in the way it recruited people. So they targeted this um, young man in Scotland uh, when he was in London, and it, this was in the papers in the London Telegraph. So I'm not telling anything confidential here. It was all exposed, uh, especially a year later. Um, Lord uh, Viscount Rehaven, um, and uh, he was he was wealthy. Uh, he was involved in the rock scene, uh, promoting music, and uh, so one of the main operatives under Nazim, Sheikh Nazim, uh, is Muhammad Ali. I guess is, is his name, part of his name. He targeted uh, this young man and got him involved in Islam and the group. And, and uh, I mean, the young man was kind of naive. I mean, that's, you know, just the way he was. He wasn't a, a, a great intellect, let me put it that way. And, and he was easy to recruit, apparently. And they took total control of him. They even had a one-on-one -on -one person with him, managing yeah. him and all his affairs, going to the bank with him, getting uh, major withdrawals. Got having him sign checks to the group, or you know that kind of thing, and so the father got suspicious of it, Lord uh, Seafield, and uh, he hired a major uh, uh, PI firm uh, in London, and uh, these guys were top rate, and they brought Jolly West in uh, to help exit counsel this young man after they had spirited him away from his home by some trickery, he actually went willingly with somebody he thought was a Muslim, but the guy wasn't, <laughs> he looked a little Muslim, but uh, he was a little swarthy skin. And they took him to this place uh, in a, a, a peninsula of Noidart across from Malay in Northern Scotland. And Jolly spent some time with the young man there and it wasn't getting very far apparently. Uh, so he got in touch with me and a couple of other uh, exit counselors and we flew over there to try to see what we could do with the young man and talk to him. And um, so I kind of semi-led that that effort. We met with Jolly West in London. He briefed us on the case. Um, and I went up to uh, Noidart. We had to get there by boat. There was no other way across from Malag. It was quite isolated. It was a small uh, hunting village. Very, very pretty place. Um, a great tavern where you could get the finest uh, single malt whiskeys right nearby where we were working. <laughs> and uh, uh, so we had a decent week with uh, this young uh, nobleman. Uh, he listened to us. He eventually uh, did leave the group, not immediately, uh, but uh, the group stayed away from him after that point because they realized that this uh, whole effort to get him out was going to expose Nazim even more, you know, because I, I, I spoke out again about him publicly in the paper and uh uh well anyway a year later they interviewed the young lord and he was happy that the whole event had happened uh the intervention was successful and he uh denounced uh, what nazim had done to him so that was that case it was very interesting uh, it was a <laughs> kind of a, a fun different type of uh situation to be in um the other and one, how, like I mentioned, yeah, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt, but how did Jolly and West get that case? How did he find out about it to get you involved? Well, Lord Seafield, obviously a very wealthy man, and, and he wanted to get the best in terms of what mind control was about. And he was told about 
Jolly West's uh, research in that field and, and his fame. And so he went right to the top and talked to him personally and uh, oh. convinced him to fly over there. Uh, Interesting. Uh, yeah. So, the, and it was that the same as this case you're about to talk about in the States too? Is that somebody contacted West who then contacted you? Mm, that was different as, as I recall, because my memory isn't clear on this, but West was involved in a court case with this young woman who was accused of child abuse and they were going to maybe take her child away from her. And the child abuse uh, resulted because of the sect she was in, this Christian Bible sect that believed in corporal punishment. And, um, you know, she'd slap the child or hit the child's hand. And whenever it did anything, she didn't want it to do uh, as a corrective. And that was like dozens and dozens of times daily because this is how the group operated. Um, so West convinced the court to, um, you know, rather than immediately take the child from her, have her go through some exit counseling and see if she could renounce the group and get some therapy and begin to adjust in her parenting skills. Uh, so I flew in with uh, into California with a couple of other people that, that did exit counseling, and, and we tried to work with this young woman for about a week. And uh, what was interesting, when I first met her, her child was uh, still in the room because we, we, they had a like a nanny to take care of her while we were working with this woman. Uh, and I went to wave hello to the little girl as soon as I raised my hand to wave hello, she shrunk back, you know, and I, I knew immediately this kid had been traumatized because just the wave of the hand looked like punishment to her. Yeah. And so how did that, how did that, that get uh, worked out? Did it, was there a I, positive outcome like the other case? I don't think so. I, uh, she held on to her beliefs as I left that case. I don't know what happened. I didn't do any follow-up afterwards. I didn't hear. Uh, so I didn't, I don't think it turned out very well. I, I believe she had to be monitored by uh, children and youth services for quite some time after that. Um, I don't know if they took the child away, uh, but but it, 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 it was vague uh, in terms of how it ended up. I don't, I'm not sure we had much effect on her in dissuading her from her beliefs. And had you heard of other stories of West farming out kind of uh, cult interventionist things other than you? Was he was he central in a lot of those things? Like uh, no, no, that was very rare for him to get involved that way. Um, you know, I, I, in fact, that's the only two cases I know of where he um, did that kind of intervention. And the one in Scotland is the only one I know where he went in physically, uh, you know, personally to work with somebody like that. And people would ex-members would come to meet him. You know, uh, but he never, uh, as far as I knew, had a practice of, of doing an intervention with someone who, that was a true believer, you know, uh, especially <clears throat> someone in the beginning that wouldn't want to talk to him. And he was on kind of the uh, West would travel around and go to lots of conferences talking about mm -hmm. cults and things like that, too. So were you yeah, aware he, of him at that time? Yeah. Doing that stuff. Yeah, he would uh, show up at uh, American family uh uh at the Foundation. aff conferences yeah uh and uh call awareness of network conferences uh i heard him lecture once uh correcting his uh, diagnosis of l ron hubbard the founder of scientology who he considered schizophrenic uh earlier in his career and he adjusted that to uh coming 
out with uh, antisocial personality disorder for Hubbard. Uh, and he, he described in a paper why he came up with that, what evidence he had for that. And that was interesting to hear him talk about that. You know, so he wasn't afraid to criticize uh, Hubbard and uh, Scientology. In fact, you know, I don't think any cult out there intimidated him. Didn't he become fair game? Didn't he? Didn't Scientology put him on some list or something? I thought maybe that was the case. Did you ever? Hear yeah, he would have been. He would have been fair game. He would have been. Uh, uh, there was a lot of disinformation spread about him. You know, for instance, Scientology made a big deal out of him allegedly killing an elephant by overdosing on LSD back in the fifties. And this, the real story is that they did experiment on this elephant named uh, Tusco. Tusco. Yeah, Tusco. Tusco, right. And there were many elephants named Tusco, but this one was a particular Indian male elephant, uh, I believe, in Oklahoma. And um, the mistake they made were two mistakes. Uh, they, gave, they dosed it thousands of times more than a human being should take to trip on LSD. They didn't take into account that, that the size of the brain is what matters, not the size of the body. And so elephant had seizures apparently and then they tried to uh, use some drugs to uh, uh, bring the elephant down uh, for instance thorazine would be used in some cases to help people uh, get off of a bad LSD trip I've seen that happen in the psych hospital where I work for instance sometimes that people come in on these psychedelics and there's certain drugs that that are very helpful in, in settling somebody down and that was one of them but it's a low dose they give people so I don't know. I don't remember what they gave the elephant, but some some uh, scientists believe that it was the uh, recovery med- meds that that killed the elephant more so than the LSD. And uh, who knows what other uh, uh, factors were involved? Uh, there's a doctor that later dosed two elephants with LSD with similar doses, and uh, neither of those elephants showed any more than some anxiety for a few hours. They they weren't. Uh, injured by those high doses so there could have been something uh that affected that particular elephant do you know why they selected an elephant like what what did they you know why was it an elephant not a cat house cat or a dog i there was some disorder that the elephant had that they wanted to you know i I, it might have been angry or i don't know what they wanted to see if they could change its consciousness the way you know some Human beings, uh, we've known this for a long time, and there's new research being done. You know, a dose of LSD of 250 micrograms or 500, uh, which can cause an eight-hour trip, uh, has helped people overcome addictions, depression, um, melancholia, uh, a number of uh, factors. Uh, You have to be careful, though, who is a good candidate for that kind of therapy, because some people can end up uh, becoming more psychotic after taking an entheogen like that or uh, that type of a uh, psychedelic drug. Uh, so there's a lot more careful science behind that. But but yeah, like even uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy's wife, who was mentally ill, uh, depressed, uh, did uh, LSD therapy in the 50s. And it helped her for a year. She was, he was, you know, he was very impressed with the results from that session. Uh, so yeah, it has benefits, but you the the unknowns are just too vast to give it out randomly to people like hippies were taking, for instance. Right. The the consequences are all different. There's there's a wide kind of spectrum of like some people does bad things and some people mm-hmm. have Well, I, I, I used it back in the sixties, LSD and a few other psychedelic drugs, uh, you know, maybe half a dozen times total. 
I got bored with them about the third or fourth time I tried that because, uh, you know, the first time it was exciting. If you get into all this bells and whistles of consciousness and, you know, one with God and one with the universe, all that stuff comes up. And, uh, but you know, the, the, the more you take it, um, like Houston Smith says in his book on entheogens, um, they have like a half-life for the average person. You don't get that kick anymore, that insight. And after a while, you begin wondering, you know, why am I even doing this? And I, I stopped it because of that reason. I got bored with it. And I thought, well, maybe it's, it also can affect me adversely. You know, so I didn't see any reason to, to use it anymore. And I, I haven't, you know, not, in, not since 19, uh, maybe 73. But that was the that was the era. There are tons of that was the era. Yeah, the late sixties to the early seventies. Uh, and you know, back in that day, uh, early in the uh, Silicon Valley thing, these guys that were into computer programming uh, were microdosing on LSD, and they thought it helped them. And they still are. Yeah, apparently they still are. Yeah, yeah, the microdosing crowd. I, I think a lot of it's you know placebo effect. They believe it's going to work, and it works. Uh, you know, LSD, like any kind of uh, mind-altering uh, drug like that, can loosen up your synapses and the way you perceive things for a while and give you some new insight into uh, how to look at something. So, uh, you know, it might be good for some creative people. I, I don't believe in it myself. Did you ever hear of um, Jolly and West being in Kate Ashbury and being involved in kind of drugs or helping people. I think there were lots of drugs at Haiti Ashbury. Mm -hmm. So that free clinic that he was associated with saw tons of, you know, troubled people who were overdosed or whatever. Do you ever hear anything about that? I have. And I, I read about it. He didn't talk about it much. Uh, you know, he was a very caring individual. He's deeply involved in the civil rights movement, yeah. uh, protests, uh, you know, he was friends with Charlton Heston too. Like yes, he was Yeah, friends. back in the day. Yeah. It was interesting because yeah. Charlton Heston turned into like a right wing uh, gun right kind of a person. Uh, but yeah, back then they were, you know, um, quite close. In fact, he was, uh, known to governor Reagan West and, and Reagan got, uh, him involved in a, uh, uh, project yeah. in California. And it, it was written up in this book journey into madness true story of secret CIA mind control and medical abuse by Gordon, Gordon Thomas. Thomas. Yeah. yeah. And in that book, uh, I, I have it open here, but uh, just to be accurate, uh, Reagan wanted to see what they could do in 1974 with some of these problems people were having about violence and, and all of that. And, and so he uh, hired Jolly West to look into this while he was at the neuropsychiatric Institute in uh, UCLA. And, uh, uh, so, uh, Wes had proposed to the governor the creation of a financially well-endowed multidisciplinary center for the study and reduction of violence. Within its confines, doctors would explore all types of violent behavior, what caused it, and how it could be detected and prevented and treated. You know, so they were going to do these laboratory-type things, uh, maybe even put implants in people to monitor, you know, their behavior or their feelings and uh, do interventions to help reduce violence. I don't think it came to anything because it was a little too adventurous, but, um, um, you know, it was they, on the table. They, it was on the table. You know, about, yeah. they, they were going to possibly concentrate on the pharmacology of violence and the best way to use anti-violence inhibiting drugs. You know, that was one of the things they were looking at. 
So, you know, you see that effort, for instance, in uh, Brave New World with Huxley, the Soma drug, to make everybody feel okay about being in a totalist uh, community and, and overcome depression. You know, so everybody took Soma. Um, uh, it, in a way... They're Huxley, kind of taking it today with Prozac. Well, we, mean, yeah, we take all so kinds of stuff today, focus, you know. It's, yeah. And now it's... Uh, Medical marijuana, you know, that's become the universal soma now. Good yeah. point. Yeah, very true. Yeah. Um, and you kind of you kind of go into some stuff. I was looking over your. Is there anything you'd like to add before we kind of move on to your YouTube channel? What What's your kind of final take on West, or what's your thought about him? You meeting him and knowing him. Yeah, he was impressive. Um, I met him one time uh, before I went to Scotland. Uh, um. Let me think. But anyway, Dr. Singer and him were in the same room and I had walked in and they were having this discussion about the old days. And I wish I could have heard a lot more about that because they, you know, that's the kind of stuff that books are made out of, you know, what went on back when the government hired these people to uh, research mind control and, and all of that stuff. Uh, yeah, that was, uh, they were both quite impressive. Um, yeah, West, I thought at the end when I knew him, he was a very kind-hearted man, uh, uh, intellectually curious about a lot of things. Um, his uh, end of life in cancer, he, they said he died of cancer, but I heard his son uh, wrote later on to clarify that, that West had chosen to die and uh, his son assisted him. And so he took um, um, some medications that was like an overdose because he knew he was dying anyway of cancer. So he he uh, made that choice. Right. I think that, that I think was his a, son that actually was, wrote a book about it. Yeah. Yes, he did. It was in 1999 that he passed away. Um, do you mind taking a few questions and, and then we can cover some of the yeah, sure. inquiries? Sure. Uh, Joker asked, what would you recommend for a born in or second generation survivor looking for assistance to like a cult or a coercive environment? Yeah, the, the International Cultic Studies Association has uh, conferences and, and, and also links on their website to second generation uh, recovery uh, uh, sites and, and, and people and, and books. Uh, so if you go to ixahome.com, I-C-S-A, home, H-O-M-E, dot com, and look for um, uh, SGAs or second generation uh, uh survivors of, of cults you'll find information there i think that might be the best start uh they can you know you can stretch out from there but also just put in second generation cult recovery and you'll see there's certain people that that have started their own podcasts or websites uh and, and it'll come up as far as linking into communities out there on the internet that are dealing with that problem gotcha and carl asked do you have any contact with ted patrick or alexander jr in the 70s I did. I met Ted Patrick once at a cult awareness uh, network conference. Um, we just talked about a case that I had worked on and the, it didn't work out. And then the mother told me that she was going to call in Ted Patrick with all these people. And uh, that, that never happened. Ted said he never did it because she didn't have any money. Um, yeah, I never worked with Ted. I knew people that did work with him that became exit counselors or deprogrammers later. His techniques uh, are, you know, I, I didn't agree with. Um, 
I, I know he probably helped a lot of people, but I think he became a legend in his own mind and he wanted to, you know, do a lot of media contact in order to stop the cult problem, uh, you know, sort of grandiose about the whole thing. Uh, so in a sense, he became a, a hero to some people and uh, other people avoided him like the plague in the exit counseling field. Uh, and then as far as uh, Alexander Jr., he, I think, was an offshoot of Ted Patrick. And he started his own deprogramming teams. He also set up a recovery center in Arizona. And I met um, quite a few people that had worked with um, Alexander and, and his son and had been to the recovery center. And they later became exit counselors. Uh, one of them, rather infamous, uh, uh, Mark Bloxham, got into quite a lot of trouble because uh, he couldn't control his addiction problem while he was a deprogrammer. And uh, I worked on some cases with him. So I learned about Alexander through uh, Ted, uh, Mark uh, Bloxham and others that worked with him on cases uh, when I was working with Mark a little bit. I worked on a handful of cases with him back in the uh, 80s. Interesting. And Jolly asks, what's your opinion of Steve Hassan and his bite model? Well, about? you know, that that bite model it came out in 1988 in his book combating cult mind control and it's it's helped a lot of people even people that are critical of steve thought the book was good um you know th that i knew uh, i know steve quite well I, I admire his work um some of his ideas are a bit controversial in the social science field because of uh, maybe the way he did his research but uh you know he he's a he's a pioneer in a sense in the field of uh, exit counseling. Uh, he has stretched into politics now. He wrote that book, The Cult of Trump, which is fairly well researched. I did a review on it. Um, you know, a lot of the points he makes in there are accurate. And uh, uh, he continues to, uh, you know, pursue his career. He got his PhD within the past two years. And uh, yeah, you know, he's been a force in this field, one of those names. Uh, controversial to some and uh, very uh, helpful and needed to others. Uh, I mean, his bite model works. There's lots of models of what mind control is. And as long as, for me, as long as it's applicable and a pragmatic approach, uh, there's there's a host of models that can uh, uh, help people understand mind control. For instance, uh, Robert Lifton, Robert J. Lifton's uh, eight themes of, of uh, what constitutes uh, totalistic uh, thought reform uh, have been very helpful. And Hassan refers to that. Uh, there's Margaret Singer's eight or six uh, themes. Uh, you know, uh, Dr. Yanya Lalich has a four-part uh, scheme. And, uh, you know, I use a four-part scheme, also a model that, that helps my clients understand what I mean and, and what, when I lecture. So, so yeah, there's lots of models. Uh, Hassan's bite model might be one of the most well-known. Interesting. And uh, let's see, what else we got here? Um, yeah, Carl mentions chapter 22 of Lifton's book. And uh, and you've done a lot of stuff on the YouTube. You kind of have a lot of subjects there. I'll put a link to your YouTube ch uh, mm -hmm. channel so people can look. But you kind of got into the culture. Can you kind of talk about... Uh, why you had that series on on your YouTube channel? Yeah, I named it uh, Cults in the Yaw Culture. And the reason I did that is there's a lot of confusion about both the word cult and the word occult. 
and and I, I in fact I just did a lecture on the all culture of the uh, last uh, uh, International Cultic Studies Association conference, and uh, that can be available I think through their website. Uh, so our culture is just basically anything to do with uh, you know witchcraft, fortune telling, astrology. Uh, you know, the belief that if you knock on wood, uh, that it'll uh, take care of what you just said, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and it goes into religion. Um, every religion has an element of the occult and a cult within it. They can't thrive without it. You know, it, and I'm using these terms in, in a neutral sense. A culture just means hidden wisdom or hidden powers or something that's hidden from the human senses. And religion primarily deals with things that are hidden from the human senses, you know, beyond the social good they do, which is not hidden, but then the worship of a God or a deity, um, uh, using prayers that, that somehow interact with this deity. I mean, that's all a cult that's hidden. And it, it, it's based on belief, not on scientific testing that, that our senses can pick up. Um, the, the same thing with, with cults. You know, the most ancient cults may have been tree cults. They, you know, cultures had a sacred tree. And, and you see the story in Genesis might be reflective of the ancient tree cults because these trees had significant meaning to that early form of man that we call Adam and Eve. And that story got passed on. So uh, there were bear cults, you know, where uh, hunters in, in, in Neanderthal times or whenever would hang a bear claw on their neck to carry some of the sympathetic magic or power associated with bear power. You know, so uh, Catholics, I grew up Catholic, the core cult in Catholicism is the Eucharist, is the Holy Communion, is, is what's called Thanksgiving. Eucharist is Thanksgiving for the body and blood of Christ being shared among the body of Christ on earth. And it's done mystically through something called transubstantiation. But, but without that cult, Catholicism cannot exist. You know, so what happens when I lecture that the problem with cults and the culture is when use of those ideas become self-sealing social systems where there's a strong us and them variable and there's a strong belief in some kind of transcendent attraction where there's, there's an authority figure that interprets all this for everybody. Uh, people become... Um, circular in their thinking. Uh, it's called orbiting, orbiting around the central idea 24-7. You know, it's something they think about when they wake up, when they go to bed, they go to meetings during the week. Uh, and this is the key uh, to, and it's Lifton's key too. his final theme is dispensing of existence. And I call it exit perils, meaning to get out, things are going to get dangerous for you. You're going to lose your soul. You're going to lose your salvation. You're going to go insane. You're going to betray the group and, and they could retaliate against you. You will lose your investment. If you leave the group, the person you're married to might divorce you. Uh, you know, there's all these exit pearls once you end up in a, uh, a self-sealing social system. And that more or less defines what a harmful cult is, is how they define who was allowed in and who was allowed out. That's a lot. That's a lot of groups. I mean, there were scary things. All, all groups to some extent participate in that. Like Lifton said, this is a matter of degree. You know, you get a, a group like Charlie Manson and the, the degree of, of uh, intensity 
and ending up in violence and, and uh, control that he had is a lot more than your average local church, you know, or your average Al's club or, or whatever. You know, even though all of those groups, whether it's a church, has an inside and an outside. They have rules of engagement. They have, um, but, but a healthy group, a healthy cult, uh, if you will, um, allows people to exit graciously. They're not going to condemn them. They, you know, they, they wish they would stay, but, but there's no threat on their soul or their life, so to speak. There shouldn't be, you know, a person in, in a free society should be allowed to make a free choice to leave their religion. Agreed. Agreed. So I'll put a link to your YouTube channel and then your book, our mm -hmm. other discussion about your book and a link to the book. Is there mm -hmm. anything you'd like to add, Joe, or anything I missed before we wrap it up? Uh, yeah, this is a vast topic. If you get into it, uh, be careful because there's a lot of rabbit holes. <laughs> so I've helped people get out of those rabbit holes over the years. Uh, you know, I myself went in and out of them. And, uh, you know, Mircea Eliade, uh, the great scholar on religions, uh, you know, who's controversial in his own way because he was quite right, right wing. Um, he called it ordeal by labyrinth, his study of religions, world religions, because you had to, um, if you look at the... Um, the, the myth of uh, the, the labyrinth in ancient Greek, uh, Theseus, who went down there, he had this thread, Ariadne's thread, to help him come back out of the labyrinth. So you need to have a safe way out of the rabbit hole, know how to get back out of the cave if you're going to go in one. Uh, otherwise, you might get stuck there for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And th that's the idea. So basically what that is is that you maintain some skepticism you know, in, in my view, um, a form of pragmatism where everything is up for question, even my own beliefs. So uh, th that, I think, yeah. is a safety factor. Yeah, that's a great way to end it. The Ariadne's thread to get out of the labyrinth because yeah. there's uh, so many of these groups and cultures. Well, there's a lot of coercion and uh, mm -hmm. a lot of heavy... A lot of heavy influence, you know, you you know, it's like the idea of the big lie. If you tell it often enough, people start believing in some of it, at least. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can put it in political groups, uh, all mm -hmm. kinds. Of, I don't care what's part of the spectrum it is, left, right, whatever. Could has had some element of uh, us against them and mm -hmm. those those levels of debris that Lifton talked about. But, uh, Joe, thanks again. Thanks so much sure. for your time. It's great to talk with you again. And I'll put links to the YouTube. Do you have the social media or anything or a way people can contact you if you're interested? I have a Twitter. They can contact me through email. Um, no. I have a Twitter account, hashtag Jay Zimhart. Um, and uh, my email is, again, jsimhart at gmail.com. People want to reach out. Awesome. Thanks so yeah. much for your time. I no really problem. Appreciate it. All right, good. Thank you. Have a good day. All right. All right. You too. Stay there. Stay there.